is a special case to me because it's the only serious case I was involved in that remains unsolved. And furthermore, it's a case that I'm hopeful will be solved. And broadcasts like this and talking about it like this might just be the catalyst, might just make somebody pick up a phone or suggest a name. So anyway, this pair were going along the road, rutted track, taking it very easy, and they see in front of them what looks like a black bin bag full of rubbish. And of course, they avoid it so it doesn't snag beneath the car. And as they're driving round it, they look down and they see that it's actually not a bin bag, but the body of a woman that has been flattened, that has clearly been run over at least once, maybe twice. I remember sitting, speaking to her parents. I had to go and tell her parents what had happened to her. And sitting, speaking to her parents, and her parents absolutely distraught because seeing her slide into addiction for them had been like watching a train crash in slow motion. There was nothing they could do. They tried everything. They tried reaching out uh, to her in every way, and there was simply nothing they could do. And her father described it to me. He'd been a merchant seaman at one time in his life. And he said it was like she'd gone overboard and we were reaching out to pull her back, but she drifted away. Hello, Tom. Nice to see you again. Good evening, Simon. How are I'm you? fine, thank you. Tonight, we're going to talk about a case that uh, I know it's a very special case for you uh, for a lot of reasons, and a very special case in Scottish police history as well for reasons that we're going to explore tonight. But it's one of these landmark cases because of the impact that it had. But first and foremost, uh, I'd like you to give us the background. I didn't know anything about this murder case, Tom, until I got to know you and got to know some of your work. And it's a very poignant case as well, especially where the family are concerned. So I thought, firstly, if you could give us the background to it and the murder itself that night and how the police dealt with that initially. Yeah, that, that's great, Simon. You're right, it is a special case to me because it's the only serious case I was involved in that remains unsolved. And furthermore, it's a case that I'm hopeful will be solved. And broadcasts like this and talking about it like this might just be the catalyst, might just make somebody pick up a phone or suggest a name. And we'll come to all that later, but the frustrating thing about this case is that it's unsolved and yet it's solvable. And yet it's solvable. And in some instances, this is a, a very common story, a very common tragedy from the 1980s. And the context of this, of course, is the coming of heroin, the coming of Afghan heroin to Scotland. I'm a bit of a police historian, as you know, and when you look at the history of, of policing going back over 200 years now, people don't tend to change. There have been some big turning points. The, the coming of the railways in the 1840s made criminals mobile. You couldn't ride that far on a horse, not even if you were a very adept highwayman. You can only make 20 miles. But the railways gave mobility to criminals. The iron horse, as we called it in Argyll. The iron horse, as you still call it in Argyll. <laughs> you still have steam trains there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, cybercrime, most recently, and we'll maybe talk about that in a future episode, has again changed everything and is now thought to be responsible for 50% of all crime, which is remarkable. But in the 1970s came the change which really altered everything. 
And that was, of course, the coming of heroin, Afghan heroin, which started to appear on our streets in trickles in the mid-70s, about 1976. And at first, and I remember I was a young uniform cop at that time, working down in, in North Edinburgh in a, in a very busy high-crime area. And we started to see housebreakings just soaring, just going through the roof. And I couldn't quite figure out what it was because we'd get housebreakers, regular housebreakers who would maybe carry out one housebreaking a week, were suddenly breaking into a house every day. And of course, we rapidly found out it was because they were taking heroin and they had become addicted to heroin. They had to feed their habit. Tom, she were, I joined the police in 78, not long after that. And okay. I worked in Campbelltown for the first three years of my service. And then I was in the Isle of Butte. So it was probably four or five years later that I came to Orkney Street in Glasgow. And what I remember about it was that the older cops, older than you and I at that time, certainly more than 10, 15 years service, had no patience for drugs or for drug users or for anything to do with drugs. To their mind, it wasn't really a police matter. They were way ahead of the game here because if it hadn't been a criminal matter at that time, we'd be looking at a very different world just now in, in my estimation. But these older cops and senior cops, as a young detective, I had a big job on my hands to convince these uh, bosses of mine that this was a real issue that we could penetrate and that it was causing real problems in our communities. That's right. You're absolutely right. And, and decisions were taken then that really cast the whole framework for 30 years on in this war on drugs, which, as we've discussed before, was completely futile, and in which we both fought all the years of our police service to nil effect when you think about it, really. But back then, as the 70s turned into the 80s, I can understand why it was seen as a crime issue, because it manifested itself mainly as a crime issue because acquisitive crime was exploding. Yeah. And I remember we had a very far-sighted head of the drug squad at that time, very small unit of the drug squad at that time. It wasn't anything like the size it became. But his name was Tommy Thompson. He was an awful nice man at DCI. And he was, he was actually quite a, a clever, an intelligent man. And I remember him sitting at a, a CID conference saying, gentlemen, before we are out, Drugs will dominate everything we are doing. And we all looked at him because we were concentrating armed robberies and things like that. And, and frankly, we didn't believe him. We thought he was being overdramatic. And I'll tell you what, he was absolutely spot on. He was absolutely spot on. It wasn't until the early 80s that actually his worst predictions came true. I was on my detective training course in 1983 at Tully Allen which you won't even remember doing that. Did they have detective training courses when you were a young detective, Tom? I attended the detective training college at Ayr Police Station. Oh, I've heard tales about that, yes. Let me tell you something. That was a moral and a physical test. <laughs> and a drinking test probably as well. That's right. There was a place called the Beach Ballroom, I think it was called. This may still be classified information. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't have any direct knowledge, you'll understand, but I was told by friends, people used to go there and drink and dance and things like that. But, but, yeah. Yeah. Let me just say this to you, Simon. I was at the real detective training. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, leave it at that just now, because what I was going to tell you was in relation to drugs, I had a colleague, uh, Tom Sneddon, but he was from central Scotland, a very small force, as you know. We finished our detective training, went back to our respective uh, offices. He went to his boss and said, 
I'd like to do something about the drugs problem in Stirlitz. <laughs> and his boss said, what drugs problem? I've never heard anything about this. And because it's an unreportable crime. So if it wasn't reportable, the police really could put their blinkers on. It didn't exist if it wasn't reportable. Your robberies and your car thefts and your house breakings, they're all reportable and have to be dealt with. But drugs was off the radar as far as most of the senior cops were concerned. But he gave Tam a week to go and see what about this drugs problem and see what was going on. <laughs> now, Tam was my age. He would be 23 or 24 at the time. And he took a neighbour and went out. And for that week, <laughs> he went mad. He was locking up people left, right and centre for possession and a bit of dealing or whatever. I can't remember the figures now, how many cases he did that week. But you can imagine, because nobody else was doing anything. And on the Monday morning, the following Monday, he got called in to see the chief. And I don't know how big a force. You'll know better than me, Central Scotland, but he got called in front of the chief. And I think Phil Tam thought he was going in to get promoted. I think he thought he was going in to get congratulated about this fantastic result he'd had. And he almost got the sign. <laughs> he got absolute strips torn off him. His DS was with him. He'd been asked to come in and listen. And he was told, we had no drugs problem in central Scotland until you came along. <laughs> now we've got all these productions. The production officer doesn't know what to do. We've got reporters on the phone. We've got families on the phone. We've got the fiscal going off his head because we've got all these drugs cases getting submitted, even custody reports going in because of you. Now, if you come back here again, in this office again with a drugs case, you'll be out the door with it. Yeah, that's a classic case of shooting the messenger. <laughs> they, I actually knew about the regime there at that time. But the, the very same thing was uttered by the chief constable of Grampian at that time. Right. We don't have a drug squad because we don't have a drug problem. And we don't have a drug problem because we don't have a drug squad. <laughs> it's a bit like the dandruff advert. Oh, sorry, Tom, I shouldn't have mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's right. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But it's absolutely the same as the sex industry. Yeah. If you ignore the sex industry and pretend it doesn't exist, then you don't have to apply any resources. You don't yes. have to turn over the stone. You yes. don't have to deal with any of the consequences of it until it jumps up and bites you. And, of course, that's exactly what our story is about tonight. Yep. Because every big city, particularly every big city with a port or a harbour, has, since time immemorial, had a sex industry. In Edinburgh, our port is Leith, the port of Leith. Since the late 1600s, there's been reports of sex workers in ports and in the docks. In fact, interestingly, and this is one for public health fans, syphilis, the venereal disease of syphilis, arrived in Leith exactly six years after Christopher Columbus's cruise brought it back from the Americas. 1492 was Christopher Columbus, so it took six years to reach Leith, because Leith, of course, was the central hub of on the East Coast yes. for trading with Europe. You guys in the West, you, you couldn't do very much until they got steam, because there was so much sea between you and America. We've never had the promiscuity that you've had through there, of course. I do realise that. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do. Yes, I know that. <laughs> Let's stick to the facts, shall we? <laughs> so, so anyway, the, we've always had a sex industry in Leith, and pretty much it was treated as a kind of live and let live. It was always going to be done. The older cops kept an eye on it. The street women were older and quite wise, could look after themselves. 
And everybody knew about it and everybody just accepted it as one of these things that happened. But what we didn't realize was that with the coming of drugs, with the coming of heroin, everything was changing. And it was a rude awakening for us. We only found out because of a tragedy which occurred in April 1983. 7th of April, I remember it very well. It was a very cold, wet spring. And it was more like winter than spring, actually. I was in the serious crime squad and we were all down working on the disappearance of Susan Maxwell, which had taken place the year before in 1982. What happened on the 7th of April was that a couple were CB radio enthusiasts. I don't know if you remember CB radio, shortwave radio, which of course is now, after mobile phones, it's now, I, th I think it's all but disappeared. But in the early 1980s, it was very popular. And people would go to places where they had good line of sight, particularly at night when the atmosphere was better for radio uh, broadcasting. And one of the places they used to go to was right on the foreshore at Granton in the north of Edinburgh, near a part up there called Silver Nows. And anybody who knows Granton will know it. It's part of the shore. And there's an undisturbed line of sight across to Fife. And they would go down there with the Citizens Band radios and they would broadcast messages and all the rest of it, with their cars with huge aerials on them. And that night, on the 7th of April, 1983, a young couple went down to carry out their CB radios, but this was about 11 o'clock, half 11 at night, down right onto a rough track, which runs along beside the River Forth. It's called Gypsy Bray, and it was traditionally known as that because years and years before, gypsy travellers used to camp there, and it was always called Gypsy Bray. But latterly, it had been used for various other things. It was a familiar place for dumping stolen cars, dumping rubbish, and the occasional courting couple. In fact, we at Drylaw, and I worked at Drylaw Police Station at that time, or, or just before that, the nickname in our station was it was Durex Drive, which gives you a, yeah. a clue as to what it was used for, courting couples euphem euphemistically. So anyway, this pair were going along the road, rutted track, taking it very easy, and they see in front of them what looks like a black bin bag full of rubbish. And of course, they avoid it so it doesn't snag beneath the car. And as they're driving round it, they look down and they see that it's actually not a bin bag, but the body of a woman that has been flattened, that has clearly been run over at least once, maybe twice. And of course, immediately they get out and there appears to be some sign of life to this poor woman that's lying there, crushed. But of course, classic stuff. They've got a car full of CB radio, but they can't communicate with anybody. They can't communicate with the police, certainly. So they have to rush away, no mobile phones, have to rush away to find a call box, and they call the police, and the police attend. And because there's a sign of life, the ambulance attends, and this woman is literally scraped up off the ground and taken away to hospital, to the nearby Western General Hospital. As soon as she's there, life is pronounced extinct. I don't know what you called it in the West. We used to talk about people being PLE'd, pronounced life extinct. DOA, DOA, dead on arrival. Dead on arrival, okay. We had it PLE'd, pronounced life extinct. So anyway, the girl was found to be dead. I guess it was late at night by this time, the early hours. Myself and my team from the Serious Crime Squad were down working on the Susan Maxwell things, but we were so short of detectives at that time because we had a lot of major cases running. We had the, the World's End murders running at that time. We had the Susan Maxwell investigation running. 
And so whoever the duty detective superintendent was obviously made a decision. And I got a phone call in the early hours of the morning and told that I had to make my way, first of all, to the Western General to take possession of the body and the, the clothes and all the bits and pieces from this dead woman. But also my team was taken off the Susan Maxwell case and we were all called out and diverted to go immediately to Fetish to deal with this case. Now, at that time, there was still a chance it was a road traffic accident. We didn't refer to it as a murder, although everybody knew in the hearts of hearts it was. CID wouldn't have been called out unless it had been, but we were still, from a press and public point of view, we were still referring to it as an unexplained death. So I went to the Western General Hospital and, of course, viewed the body and had to arrange for the body to be taken from the hospital to the mortuary and took possession of the clothes. And looking at the woman, she looked to be a woman, I would say, in her probably in her 50s, I would have thought. And there was no identifying documents with her. There was no handbag with her. Fortunately for us, we got a wee stroke of luck in that there was another policeman, a local policeman in the accident emergency unit at that time, attending to something completely different. And he came and he had a look and said, oh, I said, I know that girl. I know that girl. That's Sheila Anderson. He said, I know her. She's a local girl. Lives in Muir House. Sheila Anderson. Sure it is. And so that gave us the first clue as to who this girl was and what her story was. She wasn't in her 50s. She was actually only in her early 30s. And Sheila had been a very bonny girl, local girl, intelligent, good family, had married, young, had married her husband, Alan Anderson, had two sons, two young boys, and had no criminal connections, but about two years before her death, had started taking heroin amongst a group of friends. Now, heroin was absolutely rife in North Edinburgh at that time. We were having huge problems with drug deaths, with drug-related crimes, and with deaths that you wouldn't necessarily associate with drugs. So we're not talking about overdoses. We're talking about people falling out of windows and coming to grief in all sorts of ways. All drug-related, drug-associated deaths. I don't think anybody knows the answer to this, at least some medics might, but some people can handle and deal with heroin and other drugs fairly moderately. They can manage it. Yeah, they can function. Yeah, they can manage it. And other people can't. And Sheila couldn't. The figures for that, Tom, are quite well known now, and it's based on good research, that 90%, and we include alcohol in this as well, 90% of people who use drugs recreationally never have a problem with it. It never interferes with their working life, with their relationships, with with their life in general, because they can manage it. And it's the 10%. Who become addicted, and the 10% are generally plucked from a demographic that includes trauma, homelessness, poverty, disability. All these things are where the 10% come from. And it's the same with alcohol. We know some people who can drink like a fish and always have done, and they've never got a problem. They seem to just function. That's the light. Whereas other people are susceptible to illness and all sorts of problems that can spiral. And one of the things you said two years one of the things is that time lapse, that it does take time to go down the drain, if you like. And by the time you start going down the drain, then it's very difficult to arrest that slide. Yeah, I've read some of that data. And clearly, Sheila was one of that 10%. Yeah. 
I remember sitting, speaking to her parents. I had to go and tell her parents what had happened to her. And sitting, speaking to her parents, and her parents absolutely distraught because seeing her slide into addiction for them had been like watching a train crash in slow motion. There was nothing they could do. They tried everything. They tried reaching out uh, to her in every way, and there was simply nothing they could do. And her father described it to me. He'd been a merchant seaman at one time in his life, and he said it was like she'd gone overboard, and we were reaching out to pull her back, but she drifted away. It was that image of this person drifting away, and you stretching and stretching and stretching to try and pull her back, try and rescue her. But she just drifted away, and there was nothing. They were powerless. She became a reckless drug user. She left her home. She abandoned her children. And for the sake of the the safety of the children, the family had no option but to, more or less, to cut her off. Helpless. They were helpless to try and arrest her. Tom, there's something comes up. I've been asked this two or three times, sometimes live on radio or whatever, when I've got my drug uh, law activist hat on. And I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you, because of what you've just said about Edinburgh and how heroin mm-hmm. became such a problem so quickly, Scotland, for some reason, seems to be susceptible to addictions. We have alcohol problems, historically alcohol problems. We have the highest drug deaths in Europe just now, and we seem to be struggling to curtail that at all. What is it in the Scottish site? Or what was peculiar about Edinburgh in the late 70s, early 80s, that it became the hub for Afghan heroin at that time? I think it's pretty well recognised that the Celtic races are prone to substances like alcohol, particularly alcohol. I think there's a sort of predilection there. But in terms of Edinburgh, it was interesting because several things happened. In the 70s, it was a very poor economy. You talked about factors affecting, and you talked about poverty. There was a lot of poverty in these housing schemes. They were bleak. They were very bleak. One of the things I object to about train spotting, which, of course, the book and the film were written about that area of Edinburgh at that time. One of the things I object to about that film is that it all seems pretty jolly and there was quite a lot of humour and banter and people running about and having what passed for fun. I can tell you I never saw any of that. No, no. (laughs) It was bleak. The other thing that happened in Edinburgh, of course, you'll know as well as I do that drug taking has a social connotation. And whereas in Newcastle, for instance, heroin arrived about the same time. For some reason, Newcastle, they smoked the heroin. They chased the dragon, as they call it. Whereas in Edinburgh, for whatever reason, injecting heroin became the fashion. What happens there is it then becomes a social thing because you meet groups of people to inject heroin and you share your works, you share needles and you share equipment. And of course, later in the mid-80s, that was to have catastrophic consequences when HIV and AIDS appeared on the scene and when intravenous drug users were prime victims for that first wave of HIV and AIDS. So I think the social conditions I think the injecting part of it, because I am told the maximum way to get hit from heroin is injecting it into your bloodstream. We've got the body found that night, around midnight. The couple report it. The police are there. Were you there the next day? 
Yes, yeah, we were right on. You'll remember the old ways it was when you were called out in the murder squad. You really blitzed it for the first 24 hours because most murders are solved in the first 24 hours. So you really had to get on top of it. And the officer in charge, the DCI, was a guy called Jim Wilson, who was a very fine detective. He became a good friend of mine, actually, after that. And I worked a lot with him. So we had the body quickly identified as being Sheila Anderson. And a full squad was called out. There was a team from the serious crime squad. I was the deputy SIO, head of the investigation side, and the, the SIO was Jim Wilson. That wasn't his division. He was from a different division. But because we were so committed in the CID at that time for major inquiries, he was called out to take charge of this murder in a neighbouring division. But Jim was a very shrewd operator, and I learned a lot from him. And he became a, something of a mentor of mine at that period of time. And I'll, I'll always be indebted to Jim Wilson. Great detective, highly regarded, very good socially as well, great speaker and raconteur, just an all-round super guy, Jim Wilson. He'd been a professional footballer. Quite a few of the people who I worked with in the early days, middle to senior ranking in the CID, had been professional footballers. No idea why. I've done that the other way around. I was a policeman for 28 years and now I'm a semi-professional walking footballer. I think we'd maybe rearrange that and say you were a semi-professional police officer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> something thinking about there, you spoke about these officers that were coming in, you were so short in the CID. What everyone sees on TV and anything on the news is the forensic team coming in, is the locus examination, especially when there's an unexplained death, probably a murder, as we now know. We always take the more serious view because we can come back from that, but we can never go back to a locus if it's been tampered with or destroyed. So tell us about setting up the examination of the locus where the body's found, photographers, forensics. You said that the first 24 hours are so crucial, critical to an inquiry. So tell us what actions are immediate at the locus there. In this case, the locus was badly disrupted because the body was moved. And of course, if you think there's a chance of life being there, you've got to take the victim away to the hospital. But what it does is it completely disrupts the locus for all intents and purposes. It quickly became apparent that Sheila had been run over by a car, crushed by a car, probably run over twice or run over and then reversed back over again. And so vehicles were all important. The first aspect was to examine the locus, and it's a dirty, rutted, muddy track with a whole lot of tyre marks and things, but you know they could have belonged to any vehicle at all. The full crime scene was done. It was beside the harbour wall, the wall going down into the River Forth, and so we had divers down looking down there, see what was there. Her handbag had not been recovered at that stage, so we wondered if any of her goods had been thrown over the wall. She had no underclothing and she had no handbag. Now, later on, we found out possibly the reasons for that. All her clothes were taken very carefully. I actually took them myself at the Western General Hospital. They were all bagged up, as we did at that time, and carefully preserved and later gave up some secrets to us. So we established the squad, Jim Wilson. Myself as the deputy, about four teams. And that's how we started in these days. We started small and grew. There's no point in starting big on a murder inquiry. If you start big, it's just a mess. And so Jimmy had sorted out his lines of inquiry, identify the body. We had identified the body. Cause of death, very soon learned what we already knew instinctively that she died of crush injuries, and then started to fan out and find about her last movements. Where had Sheila Anderson been? 
You skipped over the identification there, Tom. The young policeman who was at the Western General and who thought it was Sheila Anderson was absolutely right. And we made contact with her parents and she was identified. And then we learned the story of Sheila and this tragic drift into heroin addiction, which had eventually led her onto the streets as a sex worker. Now, this is an important issue about heroin. If you have, at that time, a £100 a day habit was pretty standard. Mm -hmm. So you had to raise somehow £100 a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, just to subsist. You needed that just to keep yourself on the straight and narrow if you were addicted to heroin. Now, there's only three ways you can make that money, really. One is that you're of independent means or you're a rock guitarist or you're the son of some aristocrat. You may be able to get family money or money you've earned. The second way, of course, is to steal it. And this is why acquisitive crime was so high. But to get £100 a day, you've got to steal £1,000 a day. Because by the time you fence whatever you've stolen, if you haven't stolen cash, if you've stolen goods, by the time you reset it or resell it, the value's gone down. So you you really have got to steal a lot of stuff yeah. to maintain a £100 a day habit. But the third way, of course, is to sell yourself, to sell your body. And that's why many young women at that time who were addicted or who were supporting people who were addicted found themselves as accidental sex workers. And that is exactly what had happened to, to Sheila. That's an important fact they put there and looked after. You know, they were pimped by partners, and it was them that had the drug habit, and they were put to work to feed the drug habit of their partner. And some of them were looking after partners. Some were addicted themselves, but were also earning enough money so that the partners could subsist and all of these things. And Sheila Anderson was one of them, and we learned very quickly that Sheila Anderson had been a street prostitute in Leith that she'd been on the street for about six months, and that she was a chaotic individual. She wasn't there every night. She'd often be high on drugs when she was actually out working on the street. She would sometimes become quite abusive to clients who didn't pay up on time or tried to rip her off. And so we started to gain a picture of Sheila's life on the streets. Now, we thought we had an ace in the hole because the police officers, the beat officers in Leith and our own licensing department kept a card index of street prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And this went back to the old cautioning system, which you would have had in the West as well. Yeah. And it dated from the Victorian times where, and it was actually remarkably enlightened. It, it, the thing was there that if a woman was caught soliciting for prostitution, she was given a caution and that caution would be recorded. And if she was caught a second time, she would be cautioned a second time and the caution would be recorded. Only on the third time would she actually be charged and then become known as a convicted prostitute. So we had this card index system. And what this card index system also had was the name of punters, yep. was the name of the men who these girls had been caught frequenting with. So we had a criminal intelligence system, if you like, connected with the street sex industry. So we thought, this is gold dust to us. And we immediately seized this card index system to interrogate it, to get the names of men who frequented the street prostitutes, either as suspects or witnesses. And what we found was it was completely and utterly useless. Yeah. 
because it was totally out of date. Because what had happened was the street sex industry had literally changed under our feet in about 18 months. That the old women that used to work the streets, the older streetwise women that were able to look after themselves, they had completely disappeared and that had been replaced with very young, chaotic girls who were, frankly, completely out of control and a danger unto themselves. A lot of these girls were very young, 16, 17-year-old. It's it's wrong to characterise them entirely, but a lot of them had come out of the care system and had ended up on the streets and, as you've said, either supporting their own drug habit or supporting the drug habit of others. A lot of them single mothers as well that had children at home or with granny or somewhere. It was just total chaos, Tom, as you say. It's maybe worth mentioning Scots law at that time as well. It was the women that the police enforcement was focused on totally. The crime was them soliciting clients. There was no crime on the part of the client looking for sex on the streets. We had to resort to drug traffic. We had to resort to breach of peace. We had to resort to other ways of manipulating these guys and getting their details at all. And of course, it's before CCTV was so prevalent in our cities. What we uncovered when we started to look at the sex industry in Leith at that time in 1983 was a horror story. We quickly set up an observation point with the help of the Scottish Crime Squad. We set up an observation point where we took a surveillance point and we took observations on any vehicle that went round this prostitute area more than three times. And if it went round or was seen soliciting for women, then we took its details and we traced its owner and we interviewed them. And that revealed an absolute horror story. First of all, the girls were not a regular team of women who were there night after night and who would work different shifts, as in the old days. There were young girls, 16, 17, who would appear on the streets, utterly chaotic, completely reckless, unable to look after themselves, sometimes subjected to the most violent, awful crimes, rapes and robberies. Sometimes they'd be accompanied by pimps, drugs changing hands. The whole thing was out of hand and out of control. And what was just as worrying was when we started to trace some of the men who were coming to use the girls' services, we found they were coming from all over the place. We had a a murder in Glasgow City Centre in Anderson, prostitute found in Hags Park. We'll cover that in a further episode in the future. One of the things we did is what you said, we had an observation point and we were getting registration numbers and we were tracking down all these registration numbers. And there's a couple of detectives went out to Bears Den, just outside Glasgow, nice area, well to do, uh, because the guy's car had been seen down there. So they went into the house, Tom, middle-aged gentleman, his wife was there and they said to him, we'd, we'd like you to come down to the police station just to help us with some inquiries that we're making. It'll take us 10 minutes, we'll get it sorted out. And the guy said, uh, why do I need to come down to the police station? Am I under arrest? You can imagine the scene. They said, no, you're not under arrest, nothing like it. But we just like to get these things done in the station where we've got access to all the right equipment and all the right information. Oh, no. There's nothing that you can discuss that my wife's not party to. I don't have any secrets. <laughs> so the detectives went, well, bugger you then. And they said, well, on such and such a night, your car was seen in Bothwell Street or whatever it was in Glasgow City Centre about 10 past midnight or whatever. And he goes and gets his diary. 
Oh, where was I? That? Oh, darling, you had the car that night. <laughs> she was working down the town. <laughs> Obviously, for thrills. Not for drug money, but for thrills, I would suggest. We had a fair bit. Of, we had senior civil servants. We had um, we had lawyers. We had all sorts. We had retired police officers. Never. We had one character we were determined to track down. He was known as the vet. He frequented the girls and often went back to their home to medicate their dogs and cats. And when we eventually traced the vet, he was a retired detective sergeant. <laughs> But actually, it was quite interesting. It was uh, it was addictive. I remember, I'll always remember going out to see a guy in uh, outside the town, visiting him in his home, and he was very well set up, handsome man in his 30s. He was addicted to street prostitutes, and he had been assaulted and robbed. He'd been blackmailed. He'd lost his wife. He'd lost his job. He'd caught some sexually transmitted disease. Everything that could have happened had happened to this guy. And I said to him, I said, what are you doing? I said, why don't you get a girlfriend? He said, a girlfriend? What would I want a girlfriend for? Oh, no. You know, it looked almost as if I'd suggested you practice cannibalism now. A girlfriend? No, he said, you don't understand. He says, it's the excitement. It's the excitement. It's the danger. He said, it's the risk. Yeah. That's what's the big turn on. But more disturbingly, Simon, what we also discovered was that we were attracting in violent criminals, serious yeah. criminals, yeah. quite well known. From Dundee, from down south, from North Tyneside, they were coming up, and from Glasgow. That was intolerable. But seriously, we were very, very concerned. And also we uncovered a level of violence that was going completely unreported because a lot of these girls, they didn't know what day it was. They weren't able to look after themselves in any way. And so it became evident to us that this was a public protection challenge, a real public protection challenge. John, Pitt Street in Glasgow, where I worked in the squad, was almost in Anderson Square. It's a few hundred yards from Anderson Cross. So every yeah. night on the night shift when we came out, we passed through, and we were so aware of the criminal nefarious activities going on down there. It was a real source of information for us. It was a real source of intelligence for us. But when I first started in the crime squad, I remember the older prostitutes that you're talking about. They had a respectability about them. They were generally sober. They had a target for the evening. They had a set target. Once they'd made 50 quid, that's me away up the road. They had babysitters. They had a life. And some of them were working during the day too. This was a way of subsidizing a living for them. And back in the day, women were much more dependent on men. I think that's important. 50 years ago, that was just a fact in society. There wasn't the same benefits yeah. and support systems that are in place now. But that changed because of heroin, exactly as you say. And those women had patches. They had patches of the area, and that was their patch. And they would work that from 6 o'clock at night until 9 o'clock at night. We had the Albany Hotel on that patch as well in Glasgow, which is long gone now. So every night there were functions on, and there were men coming out of the functions looking for services in the area. But yeah. it was all very organised and very, and the police played their part in it and you got booked by appointment almost. Oh, Betty, yeah. we'll see you on Wednesday night at six o'clock and they would get booked, taken in, photographed, fingerprinted and back out to work again. It was all very regimented until heroin came along. And I suppose you could say that about a lot of crime and a lot of violence. The whole society changed, our role in society changed in that period. There's no question about it. It's actually only now in hindsight, many years later, 
and you look back and you think, gosh, yeah, all the things that change. We were too busy bailing the boat. And when I think about that time, I think of working all hours, literally all hours. There were very few days where we didn't do a 12-hour shift because we were just going from serious case to serious case. And in the meantime, all the other officers in the force were dealing with this huge rise in acquisitive crime, particularly housebreaking. I remember we had a conference about two weeks in, we had this conference and Jim Wilson did a presentation, he was a very good speaker. And the head of the CID, our CID at that time was a man called Brian Cunningham, who was a very fine officer too. He was a great guy, Brian. When he heard the story, Brian said, stop, stop, stop. He said, listen, he said, got to get a grip of this. He said, first of all, this is a public safety issue. And he literally that day, he had the director of social work down in his office to talk to him about how we set about protecting these girls and who were they and what role they had to play. But at the same time, he told Jimmy Wilson and I behind closed doors, he said, listen, he said, whatever you do, he said, chase these criminals, these criminals who are coming in us, chase them. He said, because we've got enough problems of our own, we don't want them coming in and causing us problems. And as you said, our first line of offence at that time was our traffic department. They were fantastic because what we would do is we would intercept these visitors as they came into our area and they would get a pull from a traffic unit. Very few cars, in that day especially, very few cars that you couldn't find some sort of construction and use defect in. And by that means we harassed them out of our area because otherwise it was only a matter of time for where we had another murder or another serious crime of some sort. I've fallen out with so many traffic officers. I can't offend them any more than I have it, both in my book and on every other format. So I may as well tell you a wee story about traffic car stopping a car. Like you're saying, they helped enforce a lot of the stuff that we wanted enforced to put pressure in a community to get them to open up and start talking. And this traffic car one night in Orkney Street stopped a, a Capri. So that tells you how long ago it was. And they found a big box of cannabis, a big box of resin in the boot. I seem to remember it was £3,000 worth that. And that's a lot of money in 1983 or whatever. But they took him back to the office because he knew there was something all right. <laughs> and I get called. I always remember being at the uniform bar at Orkney Street and the traffic cops being there. And I was wanting to speak to this guy about this big lump of hash that we'd found in his car. But the traffic cop's only priority, I think he had no road tax. I think the guy had no road tax on the car. Maybe a bald tire or a broken windscreen wiper or something. And the cops, traffic cops, insisted that they got a traffic number. I don't know if you had a similar system through in Lothian, but the traffic had their own tot up system. And they needed to do so many cases in a month oh, yes, to yes, justify right. their white top and their heart. That's it. No, all we wanted to do was drive big cars, but they had to keep up their numbers. So he was very anxious that it didn't get treated as a CID as a crime and get put through for this big lump of cannabis, but it had to have a traffic number. So it went to court. It went to uh, Sheriff and Jury Court with a traffic number, CR number on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, I mean, there was always the thing about the, the CID pinching your cases. I have to say, my experience was our traffic guys were first class. If you went down and said to them, listen, guys, we need your help. We're looking for some such. Within the traffic, I'll tell you who were even better was our bikers. Our motorcyclists were really good. And later on in my service, I tell you what, I had many occasions where I had good reason to be grateful for our motorcyclists and our mounted officers, particularly our mounted officers. Right. They were really in a tight spot. They could always be depended upon. They were good guys. But Jimmy Wilson, coming back to Jim Wilson, he was very good at that. He was the guy 
who, on a murder squad, he was very aware of the fact that murder squads were parachuted into areas and could often arouse resentment amongst the local cops. Yeah, for sure. And Jimmy was very good. He would always insist on having one or two of the best community cops on the squad. And he was always have the local collator, the divisional intelligence officer, we called them collators, yep. sitting in on the briefings. And furthermore, he was clever because he would always give them the first say. So we always had a morning conference and an evening conference. And he would always call them first, tell us what you think. He would show great respect to these cops, the local cops. And the word soon spread. And it's incredible because instead of being seen as being a, an army of occupation or some smart aleck detectives parachuted in, people actually began to warm to us and they would come and tell us what they'd heard in bits and pieces. And I picked that up from Jimmy and always made sure that I did the same in later cases. He was a very astute guy that way. He, he reckoned that management was nothing more than good manners and common sense. And you know what? The longer I go on, the more I realise he was probably right. <laughs> Tom, we've got to a stage where we're at the start of a protracted murder inquiry, so protracted that it's still ongoing to this day. The influx of crime that we've now imported, the role that heroin and drug addiction played in all of that. Sum that up for us then and lead us into the next phase of that that we'll cover in the next episode. We started out investigating the death of Sheila Anderson, a sex worker who had come to grief. And we believed then, and I still believe, that probably she had an argument with a punter over some money and that he panicked and drove over her or drove over her deliberately and then reversed back over her to make Goody's escape. Very simple murder. There was nothing complicated about the actual case at all. What was hugely complicated was all the background circumstances and all the other things that we unearthed when we investigated that case, and which we had to act on quickly, because what we realised was we were sitting on top of a time bomb. We were sitting on top of a sex industry which we knew nothing about, which was highly dangerous and in which the sex workers, the young women, were taking huge personal risks and in which a lot of very serious criminals were involved. And in the next episode, we'll go on to talk about the, the case, the further investigation, the forensic science, the recovery of Sheila's handbag, and what we did about the bigger picture and how we set about trying to reduce the risk and I say reduce, not remove, because you can never remove the risk in the sex industry. But what you can do is you can reduce the harm or the risk. And we'll talk about how we set out to do that. Fascinating as always, Tom. And I really look forward to listening to that and chatting to you about it. Thanks very much. We'll speak soon. Next time on Crime Time Inc. So we had these lines of inquiry running and as we were really getting going on these we had a disastrous setback because by that time it was the summer of 1983 and in the summer of 1983 Caroline Hogg, the wee five-year-old, was abducted from Portobello. To take a step back a minute and think about it, here we were in Lothian and Borders Place now it was a big force, we had 3,500 officers, we had another 1,500 support staff, so we were a big unit of 5,000 people. We weren't a small force by any manner of means, but we were faced with three quite difficult and protracted murder investigations going on. 
We had the World's End murders of 1977, which were still going on and would run on for many years. We had Susan Maxwell's disappearance. She disappeared in the summer of 1982. And now we had Caroline Hogg, who disappeared in the summer of 1983, just three or four months after Sheila's death. And the disappearances of Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg were linked. There was no question about that. They were the same person. So we had two lots of serial killers on the go, plus Sheila's death. 